The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a real pleasure. On this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we are joined by Mr. Jim McBride. He is a singer-songwriter, an inductee of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, He's had many, many cuts by many artists, and I'm betting a lot of you listening know the words entirely to many of his songs. Jim McBride has had songs cut by many artists, as I've mentioned. Many of you may know the song Chattahoochee, recorded by Alan Jackson. Also, he's had cuts by Johnny Lee, Waylon Jennings, and many others. Mr. McBride, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Paul. Hello, everybody. And you can call me Jim. <laughs> well, I appreciate <laughs> that. And, of course, call me Paul. All righty. A lot of great songwriters come from Alabama. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about your early days. Well, you know, I, I was raised in a cotton mill village uh, in the town where I was born, Huntsville, Alabama. There were three three cotton mills and uh, they were closed down in the late forties, early fifties. The, the unions, the people who, the owners closed them down. But what you had mentioned before the group, if you go across the top of Alabama, the group Alabama is from, is from Fort Payne, Alabama, which is DeKalb County. The next County over is Jackson County, which is Curly, Curly Putman, famous songwriter, Hall of Fame songwriters from, Madison County is where I'm from. The next county over is Limestone County. Roger Murrow, who's in the Hall of Fame, as well as the Delmore brothers, are from there. And then the next county over is where uh, Muscle Shoals and all those, all those guys and gals are from. So I don't know if there's something in the North Alabama water, or <laughs> it's just a Scots Irish thing, you know. It's very interesting, though. I I think you have a point, or we have a point. Definitely some great music from writers there, and also some great music recorded in the state of Alabama. That's true. And, of course, you know, I didn't mention the most famous of all, which is Hank Williams, but he's on down <laughs> towards the middle, of the middle of the state. But let's not leave him out, you know. We can't. We can't. And Vern Gosden and Sonny James. I mean, there's just, you know, there's a bunch of great, great artists from Alabama, too. Well, on that note, can you tell us, who were your all-time favorites when you were growing up? The stuff that you loved listening to. You know what, Paul? I loved it all. I grew up listening to, uh, we only had one or two radio stations in town at that time. And and I remember I was, uh, I was six years old. I remember my mother crying when Hank Williams died. And that's, uh, you know, so he was, he was probably my first influence, but, and I always loved country music. And back in those days, there weren't all of the distinctions between music. Country songs might be on the pop charts, but they were just songs. You know what I mean? And I'm probably dating myself, but hmm. there were just there might be two versions or uh, three versions of the same song out there. But uh, it wasn't there wasn't that differentiation that we have now between categories of songs or genres or whatever. But I listened to country music mostly growing up. When I became a teenager, I was there for Elvis Presley. 
I was just a kid. I was there as a teenager for the Beatles, and they kind of lost me. Kind of lost me during the drug days of the '60s and '70s. I wasn't into that. There was some uh, a lot of good music there, but I kind of went back to the to the country thing mostly at that point. And I appreciate all good music. I listen to bluegrass and I like some classical music, some jazz. But country's always been uh, that's always been the nearest and dearest to my heart. What is it about country music that makes it, as you said, the nearest and dearest to your heart? What is it exactly about it? I think it's, I don't know about so much right now, but it's always been about reality, good or bad. You've got people just uh, telling it like it is, telling all their secrets in a song, and you've got uh, either themselves or somebody out there, out there singing it. I found out a long time ago, Paul, in writing songs, we're all human, and if it's an emotion, something I've felt, then millions and millions of other people have felt that too. And so my job, the songwriter's job, is to take those feelings and circumstances and all those situations and uh, put them into songs so that people hear them and they associate with them and they know they're not alone. You know, there's a place for sad weeping songs. There's a place for sad songs. Sometimes people need to cry, you know? (laughs) and get it out of their system. And then we need happy songs. We need songs that are just fun, and we need songs that are thought-provoking. That's kind of my take on it. And, you know, most people most people can't write a song. And so it's my job and the other guys and gals, songwriters, to, uh, to do that for them. Do you think that songwriters are more in touch with their emotions than most people? Oh, yeah. They're more in touch with your emotions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Some of the biggest-hearted people I've ever known are songwriters, and they are passionate, and and they can be, you know, I don't know. I, I will say this. It's not just a show-busy thing, but my songwriter friends, we, we have, I mean, we say, we hang up the phone or whatever. We say, I love you, man. Hmm. And we mean it because we all we're we're a member of this group and we know what everybody has been through and all the disappointments and all it takes to get where you are and you suffer for your art. You suffer a little or you suffer a lot sometimes. But I'll give a good example. Played the played the Bluebird one night with Jim Collins and a couple of other people I can't remember right now, but sometimes late in the show Someone asked where everybody was from and and what they did. There were a group of psychiatrists there, a busload of psychiatrists were at the Bluebird listening to us. And they said, you know, I think it was Jim. He said, oh, my goodness, we've been doing all these uh, codependent songs. They came up to us after the show, several of the psychiatrists, and they said, if we could get our patients to open up, (laughs) <laughs> about the way they're feeling the way you guys do, it would make our job so much easier. Very interesting. You know, we don't have we don't have many secrets. If you listen close and every song, uh, you know, there's only three places to draw from. You draw from you draw from your own personal experience, things that have happened to you and and you draw from observation, you know, things that have happened to other people. And then there's just there's just pure fantasy. You can just make something up. 
And uh, but I can't think of any other place to to draw material from than that. Someone that you mentioned earlier, I want to go into. You were mentioning songwriters from Alabama, and you mentioned Curly Putman. Yep. And I know he had a, a place in your story. I'm hoping you can tell us what was he like personally, and tell us about how the role that he had in your life. Wow. When I first started writing songs, Nashville like, was like Never Never Land to me. I lived about 100 miles away, and no one in my family had ever done that. Nobody had ever gone off to be in show business or anything like that. So I didn't really have a role model close to me. But Curly was from the next county over, and Curly played in a, a country band around town, and Curly sold shoes at Tom McCann and Curly sold storm doors and windows. And I followed his career and he was my, he was my example. He, I wanted to be like Curly Putnam. So when I started writing songs and, and got up enough nerve to take a, take my first songs to Nashville, my cousin knew a guy who knew Curly. Okay. So he made me an appointment with Curly and I went up there and was scared to death, but, uh, Curly was just a, a good old boy from, from back home. He's seven or eight years older than me. Maybe maybe more than that. But anyway, very nice. And Curly, Curly listened to, I think I'd only took one or two songs, and he said, this song would have been a hit 30 years ago. And I thought, oh, Lord, I've got 30 years to catch up on here. <laughs> he said, he said, I'll make you a deal. He said, if you will, if you will let me be honest with you, he said, I, I see, I think you've got some promise. And if you will let me be honest with you, then I think I can help you get where you want to go. And he said, can you do that? And I said, absolutely. So, Paul, there were times I would drive back to, I'd drive back to Alabama feeling really good because Curly had liked what I brought. And there were times when he went, no, no, you missed it on those, you know. And I'd come back with, kind of with my tail between my legs. And so he was my mentor. He gave me, he gave me suggestions of how to improve my writing and all that. But later, later on, I got discouraged. I had a job with the post office and I couldn't really, I couldn't just quit the post office and move up there. I tried to transfer and they wouldn't let me. Bobby Bear at that point wanted to sign me for $50 a week. And I, I'm like, Bobby, I've got a wife and two kids and I, I've got a government job. I can't right for $50 a week. So anyway, I kind of got discouraged and I put my guitar in the closet for three and a half years and I didn't, I didn't write anything. Didn't want to talk about Nashville or being a songwriter. And I ran into a mutual friend of uh, a guy that I knew musician around town and he was good friends with Curly. And he said, I was talking to Curly the other day and Curly said he thought you could have made it if you'd kept trying. Well, I didn't sleep that night. Hmm. It's like I'd been thinking about starting back. It was just eating away at me, eating away. And I thought, wow, if Curly, if Curly thought I could have could have made it. He he actually did a couple paid to have my first couple of demos done before I quit. So that got me started again and I got serious about it. And about two years later I moved to Nashville with a with a publishing deal and uh I'd see Curly from time to time, but I always make sure to give him him credit as certainly my first mentor. 
you mentioned a moment ago about your work at the post office. And it's interesting because people sometimes they, they think they're working at a certain job and they think, oh, there's no way this can apply to what I'm doing. But it's been interesting to hear from different people in the music business, songwriters, singers, whatever. And they'll sometimes relate how maybe a job that other people would think, well, that's not artistic, that's not creative, or that's not, I don't know, that somehow there was something learned from that experience. Was there anything from your time at the Postal Service that helped you later on in your life as a songwriter? Uh, you know, I think actually there was, Paul. First of all, I had a paper route when I was young, and, and I, I worked in a grocery store, and so I always dealt with the public. And I learned to deal with young people and middle-aged people and older people, and I loved listening to stories that the old folks would tell. I could sit for hours and listen to listen to them. But I think all of that comes into play later. And I have to tell you, uh, John Prime was also a mailman in a, a suburb of Chicago many years ago. And, and uh, we were talking one day. He he was like me. I, I would I would be halfway, I would be two or three blocks up the street. And I'd been thinking about a song. And I left the mail in the right boxes. I just didn't remember it. You know? And John, <laughs> called, I think he called it building his catalog while he was out on the route. But yeah, you always, you, you know, you go back and you draw from those experiences of your childhood. I've never known a songwriter that didn't write something usually about their mom and dad or, or, you know, songs about growing up. And so, you know, the jobs, all, all of that stuff, all of that stuff works together. And, uh, I think you called it building a library or, or building his catalog out on that mail route. I'll tell you this, the little yellow slips that, you used to write if I if I brought a letter to your house that was certified, and you weren't at home, I would I would take a little yellow pad, little notice, and uh, and write it out and leave it in your mailbox, telling you that you could pick it up at the post office or call and I'd bring it out the next day. Well, I wrote so many song ideas down on those notes <laughs> that I would sometimes have a piece of mail. I had them stacked up on my dresser at home with song ideas on them. And I would go to write a notice out on the mail route, and I wouldn't have one because I'd used them all up. But, yeah, it, it all works together. Life experiences, and like I said before, we are not we don't experience many things that other people haven't. It might be a little different, but we've all felt the same, same emotions at one time or another. Who was the first artist to record a Jim McBride song? Wow. Okay. There was a little label. This is just, you might find this interesting, Paul. There was a small label and a studio, a little studio in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, that hardly anyone knew about except musicians. And the guy who owned it knew nothing about music, but Roger Murrow was there, Earl Thomas Conley was there, Nelson Larkin, who produced Toby Keith and, and Earl Thomas Conley, Aaron Wilburn, who's very successful in the uh, gospel music business, myself. We were all there, and none of us had anything. We just knew we wanted to be around that studio, and we wanted to make music. So, uh, gosh, I forgot what the question was. I always have to do a verse or two before <laughs> I get to the core. <laughs> I, was, uh, <laughs> I was asking uh, 
who was the first artist or band? Oh, okay. There was a local band called the Mitchell Brothers, and the lead guy who did most of the lead singing, his name was Price Mitchell, and they put a song that I'd written. They cut it at that little studio, and they put it on that little label, which meant hardly anyone was going to play it. Ralph Emery wasn't going to play it, you know, because it wasn't on a major label. But it was on the B-side of a song called Mr. and Mrs. Untrue that had been a pop hit, and they cut a country version of it. And Price was a wonderful singer. If he had, uh, if he had really tried in Nashville, I think he would have, I think he would have done well. But uh, anyway, that was my first cut, and I think the next cut was probably on a guy. It was either Mickey Gilly or a guy named Leon Everett, had, who had two or three hits back around nineteen seventy, somewhere in there, nineteen seventy seventy one. He was on RCA. Mickey Mickey may have been my first he may have been my, my first big label cut. He was on M, I think he was on the MCA then, I'm not sure. Or maybe he's on his own label, I'm not sure. That was a long time ago. No, this is probably a hard question, but I mentioned only a couple of the artists who have recorded your work at the beginning of the interview, but there have been a lot of them, you know, and very, very legendary singers. I've been very blessed, very blessed. Waylon Jennings, for example, Conway Twitty. Yeah. So has there been one in particular that you really had to pinch yourself? You thought, wow, I can't believe he or she is <laughs> singing my song. <laughs> I have to tell you, there's a, and what a feeling that is, too. There there are 20 members of the Country Music Hall of Fame that, that have recorded my songs and I've just been so blessed. Waylon recorded three or four songs. Conway recorded three or four. So uh, George Jones, two or three. But almost every time. I mean, just to hear that voice. just to, I mean, that was just a dream for me. There was a time when I would have crawled on my hands and knees from Huntsville, Alabama to Nashville, Tennessee to hear George Jones sing one of my songs. It's got to be on record now. You know, not a live version. I want to hear it. It had to be on the record. I would literally have done that. There's no doubt in my mind. That's how badly I wanted it. <laughs> but then, but then you get there, and it's like, wow. You know, uh, all these people. Johnny Lee was huge at that at that point. Him and Mickey were were really big. I got a Jerry Lee Lewis cut my first uh, three or four months in town. I mean, who? I, I never even thought about getting a Jerry Lee cut. But then Wayland comes along, and, and gosh, it's just, I mean, Reba McIntyre, the list, the list, it's on my website. I can't even think of all of them now, but there's 20, you know, Alabama, Tubkey, uh, there, there's 20 members of the Country Music Hall of Fame and, and others that will be. So, you know, you can't, can't do much better than that, but some of my favorite cuts were by artists that, uh, you know, may never be in the country music hall of fame. They had a maybe had a good career, but it just wasn't of, of that caliber. You know, Willie. I mean, Willie Nelson. You know, you get Willie and Waylon. I've had all the highwaymen: Chris Christopherson, Willie <laughs> Nelson, Waylon, and Johnny Cash. I mean, to hear Johnny Cash do one of your songs, man. You know, it's. <laughs> I still have to pinch myself sometimes. <laughs> well, tell us about one of the more rare songs you said there were also some artists that 
you really, really like that maybe they won't ever be inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame. So maybe you can tell the listener that song to look for that they maybe haven't heard of that you felt didn't get its well, due. Yeah, there's a couple out there right now. Early on, I met Keith Whitley, and uh, I really liked Keith, and, and uh, we we became friends, and, and uh, he cut a song on his first album called Living Like There's No Tomorrow, finally got to me tonight. And he just sang it so well, but it wasn't a single. And then Razzie Bailey cut it, and then uh, John Connolly cut it, and, you know, it just never was a single. So right now out there, on the, I'll do a little plug here, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, the, the Hall of Fame bluegrass guy, they've got that song. Uh, they, they re-recorded that song, and it's out there. It's out there on Bluegrass Radio now. So that's that's one of them, just to have a Keith Whitley cut. And Keith, you know, had he lived, I think he would certainly have been in the Hall of Fame, but he may never be. But years ago, Stuart Harris and I wrote, they put us together with a, a young girl named Tammy Cochran. And Tammy had had, a, I think she had one hit on the radio. She was on Warner Brothers. And so we got together, and obviously they wanted this upbeat, positive song like they always do. That's what they expected. But Tammy started telling us about her two brothers that had died young uh, from cystic fibrosis. And she said, I really wanted to write a song on this album to, to honor them, and you know, in their honor. And we said, well, you know, maybe we can help you do that. She had a couple of lines. And so in, in two or three hours, we wrote a song called Angels in Waiting. And it stayed on the charts forever. It went to, it went top 10, but Tammy's career just never, it never took off. And she should have been a, you know, she should have been a big star, but you just never know. I've seen I've seen hundreds of great singers leave town or have a short career, you know. But that song was pretty special in it and later on it raised a lot of money for cystic fibrosis and it touched a lot of people that had lost siblings young or, or maybe had lost their own child when they were younger. And it had a video that I just can I can't I can hardly stand to watch it. It's really sad. <laughs> But that's that's just a couple of a couple of them. And I wrote a song. I wrote a song for my mom and dad called Dixie Boy that Alabama recorded, and it was very personal to me. Obviously, it was about my life, but they associated with it enough. I mean, I was I was raised sixty miles from where they were, but they associated with it enough to put it on the Closer You Get album, and I think it sold like five million. But and it was never a single, but that was that was really special. So that's just, you know, of course, they are in the Hall of Fame. But uh, I love them all for different reasons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm hoping you can tell us about the first time you met a then young Alan Jackson. <laughs> yeah. How'd that happen? Okay, I can tell you how that happened. <laughs> I was writing at a company called... Uh, SBK, which is EMI now. It had been CBS songs, and then it was SBK, and then EMI bought it out a little bit later. But I had not seen Alan on television. You can be a star or whatever it is, but he was working out there at Opry Land in the mailroom, and so they let him sing on there. I, I saw it later, but I didn't see it the day he sang. Well, a writer there at the office, Charlie Craig, 
saw it, and he got in touch with Alan and uh, and asked if, if Alan would write with him. So they were writing a little bit, and I remember going into the office a couple of times, and I saw I saw this big tall guy with some kind of cheap looking cowboy boots on and a big white hat, and I thought, man, dude, kind of he, he kind of looks like a country star, you know? <laughs> uh, didn't didn't know anything about him, so. I got a, I saw him a couple times and we just spoke and, and I got a phone call from Alan and he said, uh, he said, man, he said, I'm familiar. I've been in town, I think seven years at that point, six or seven years. He said, he said, I'm familiar with your, with your stuff, you know, Conway and Keith and, and all that. And he said, would you, would you write with me? And I said, uh, yeah, I'll, well, let's get together and see, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So we met in the old combine building, which is where uh, Dolly and Chris, a lot of great writers used to, used to write. And we got together and just started talking. He's from Georgia and, and I'm from Alabama. And we basically, we love George Jones and Vern Gostin and all the same songs and the same music. And, and so we hit it off. We hit it off immediately. I mean, even fishing. You know, we just uh, just two Southern boys that hit it off. And so either the first or second song we wrote, I had had this idea in my notebook for two years, but I never sang in clubs and I never aspired to be a, an artist. And so I knew kind of what the song was about. But when Alan started telling me about what all he was going through, trying to get a record deal and and playing out of town every weekend and not making any money and 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 having showcases and they wouldn't give him a record deal. You've been in town four or five years. And I said, man, I've got a song idea. I think we need to write. And so we wrote Chasing That Neon Rainbow. Like I say, I'd had that idea for two years. And so we just basically wrote his story and it overlaps with mine a little bit. But anyway, after that, it was like we just started writing together. We started writing together every chance we got, you know. <laughs> oh, we were at an award show one time, Paul, and he said, uh, the the announcer said, how did you guys meet? And I said, well, Alan called me on the phone, and and uh, Alan said, I called you? And I said, why would I call you? I didn't know who you were. <laughs> he said, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> he was kidding. Anyway. When I think about Alan Jackson, there's a couple of songs I think of. There's a few. I think of Chasing That Neon Rainbow. But I think a lot of people out there, when they think about Alan Jackson, yeah, they might think about It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, or maybe some people would think about his gospel albums. But inevitably, you're going to think about Chattahoochee. <laughs> and you know, well, thank, thank God for that song. I, I can tell you, Paul, that is... That's nowhere near my best song, nor is it Alan's best song, but it is the biggest song he'll ever have, and it's certainly the biggest song I'll, I've ever had and ever will have. When the album came out, I think it had maybe one single when that album came out, and it had gone to the album had gone to number two and had gone down to number 15. When Chattahoochee, and it had sold 500,000 copies, when Chattahoochee came out, the album went to number one and sold another like four million records and the single sold 
another 500,000. And, and that was just, I mean, he was on a rocket ship after, after that, but it was just a fun song that people associated with, you know, there's a Chattahoochee river with a different name in most everybody's background. <laughs> well put. We were, hey, we, we were just happy. We were just happy to have a, we we're just happy to have an upbeat song, you know. Uh, Alan and I could, uh, we could write a slow, sad ballad, but uh, we were always happy anytime we got a, got a song like that. But with the video and the, and everything just worked together, and and it just caught fire, and it's still, you know, they had. I saw a thing a while back, the top twenty summertime country songs, and it was still number one. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Thank goodness. Is there any indication or any way of knowing when something like that's going to happen? Because I agree with you. He has better songs, and, and you all have written better songs. But do you have any idea what the public is going to buy or latch on to? Not really. I remember <laughs> many years ago, many years ago, Bobby Bear, we were talking about this. And Bobby said, you can't sit down and say, I'm going to write a standard today. I'm going to write a song that they're still going to be playing 30 or 40 years from now. And it's going to get, it's going to get cut, you know, over and over recorded over and over, whatever. But he said, once you do it and once it's out there, you can't stop it. It's like, it's not even your song anymore. It takes on a life of its own. So, you know, a songwriter may say, I sat down to write the biggest song of my career. Yeah. Unless they said that every time they sat down, then that's that's not true. Because you try to write the best song you can every time. And that's not even our best song. And yet that song is still going strong after all these years, you know. It's like Bobby said, once it's out there and the public the public likes it, and now you've got the second generation coming up, they heard their mom and dad playing it. And so they, they know the song too, you know, most of them. Hmm. Could you say what makes a song a good song? Oh, gosh, to me, a good song, whether it's a feel-good song or or a thoughtful song or or whatever it is, I've always been lyric-oriented. I like rock and roll music, but I back in the early days, you know. But I realized that most of it was not. It wasn't that well written, but it was fun. And, you know, you had, you had your teen angel songs where somebody got killed or whatever. But uh, I don't know. I, I listened lyrically, first of all, and the melody was kind of secondary to me. And I don't know if it appeals. I think this is the, if it, if you like it, then it's a good song. If I don't like it, I have to admit if it's a good song, whether I like it or not, I know it's well written, you know? Hmm. I might not like the song for whatever reason, but I will have to admit that it's well written. I think it's it's just so subjective. If you think it's a great song, then it's a great song to you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Now if mom and daddy if mom and daddy think what you wrote is a great song, you might take it to Nashville and they don't think it's a great song. And you you'll never get it out there. Until you get it out there, you don't know how people are gonna you know, until you get it out there in the public uh, realm, you don't you don't know how people are gonna if they're gonna accept it or like it or to what degree. When I mention 
your induction into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. What's the first thing that pops into your head? I probably shouldn't say this, but there's like nothing left to prove. <laughs> I, I got asked this question. I got asked this question a lot, and it's like, well, don't you want to prove you can still write a song? Well, yeah, but I'm retired, and if I want to write a song, I can write it. it might not be any good, but I can still write a song. I just choose not to compete in this market. You know, I'd rather write something bluegrass or gospel or whatever. But yeah, when you're on music row and you're writing songs every day and you're living by the charts, living and dying by the charts, whether you're on there this week or this month or how long it's been since you were on there and what have you got coming out, when you're living that life, you don't have time to think about the Hall of Fame. But at some point, maybe after 25, 30 years, you look back over your body of work, and that's what the Hall of Fame is about. You look back over your body of work, and, and you think, man, I can't believe, I can't believe all this happened for me because you're too busy. You're too busy getting there. And then it's good. It's, it's a good thing about getting older, and, and uh, even though they don't want to hear your music, your new music anymore, maybe. You still, you still got all that work that no one can take away from you. Your name's still on those songs for better or worse, you know? So I don't know. It was just, it's the pinnacle to me. I'll never be in the National Songwriters Hall of Fame, and that's okay. That's okay. I'm in the National Songwriters Hall of Fame, and that's, that's plenty good enough for me. What is the best thing about being Jim McBride? Oh, man. I have been so blessed. And I'm like I'm like a lot of people. I, I've made mistakes, and I've you know I've made some big ones, but there is no doubt. I know God loves us all, but He must. I don't know if He feels sorry for me, or or what. But He uh, He has been so good to me, in spite of my failures, you know. And I mean that continues to this day. I had a heart attack two months ago. That had things not been like they were, it probably would have killed me. And that's twice that's happened. I've had cancer. And through all of that, you know, I'm still here and still enjoying life more than, than ever, probably, because I appreciate everything more. So, I, you know, your family and your friends, when it gets down to it, that's that's what matters. Wow. All the other stuff. I, you know, I've had a lot of stuff. And... It's just stuff. It's just stuff, you know. Well, not your guitars, that's different, but, you know, <laughs> the other stuff, not my guitar. I've been very, very blessed. You're one of the lucky ones, I guess. <laughs> I am. I'm lucky and I'm blessed. That's great. You can't beat that combination. But, you know, I, Paul, I've done these, I've done these seminars and things through the years where young writers would be there. I've done at colleges and different places. And, and I tell them, look, you know, they, their dreams to move to Nashville. I said, okay, here, here's my take on it. Unless you feel like if you don't go to Nashville and try to make it, if you feel like you're going to die, if you don't try, then come on, get you a plan, get a plan together, get you a job up there or whatever, and you come on and you give it a try, 
because nothing happens in that town in less than three years. You're not, you're not going to make any money. You'd be lucky to make it after that. But unless you feel that strongly about it, that it's going to kill you, if you don't try it, then come on. But if you don't feel that strongly about it, and I said, it's not in your head and it's not in your heart. It's in your gut. Paul, I wanted it so bad, my belly hurt. I mean, I would almost, I wanted it so badly, and my belly hurt. And and I said, it's, that's where it is. If you, if you want it that bad, come on, because you better be ready. Because uh, ever how good you are, there's somebody there better than you. And you've still got a lot to learn when you get there. And, you know, everything's got to fall into place. Somebody's got to give you a break. But unless you want it that bad, don't come because you're going to leave your tail between your legs. And I still feel that way. I told, I told you what I would do. I told you I'd call to Nashville, and I mean it. I would have. <laughs> I'd have bought me a couple of couple of sets of knee pads and some thick gloves, and, uh, you know, I'd have crawled to Nashville for that George Jones cut. <laughs> you got to want it that badly. Even get started. You mentioned you had a website. What is the website? How can people find that? Well, actually, actually, it's just, it's a Facebook. I've never even had a website because I, I wasn't selling anything. And up until a few months ago, I didn't even have a songwriter page. So, I got some help, and and now I've got a songwriter page. It's it's just simply Jim McBride songwriter, and if you go there, it lists all the people that have recorded my songs, and uh, the awards that I've been that that I have accumulated, and all the television and TV stuff that uh, you know that I've that I've had songs on, and some pictures which I I need to add some more stuff on there. I have I don't put much on there but and it's not it's not an ego thing it's kind of like getting everything in one place you know so you can somebody can look at it and go okay you know uh here's here's the highlights i've been going through 35 years of notebooks hmm. yellow, yellow yellow legal pads and tearing out pages that maybe where alan and i started a song or where we started rose in paradise or whatever and and, and throwing the rest of them away. You just accumulate all this stuff. And I told my kids, I said, it's just your luck that I'm not famous enough to have a museum. So you guys are going to have to deal with the gold records and the platinum records and, and all of this other stuff that I've accumulated over 35 years. You know, you'll have to deal with that someday. So I'm helping them out a little bit. I'm helping. I said, and don't feel badly about it. You know, don't. <laughs> Just what I what I wish you would do is what we did with my dad. He was a postman too, and, and he won a lot of awards. I never won any at the post office. I, uh, my head was somewhere else. But after my dad passed away, and we sat, we we cleaned out the house, Paul, and we put all of his awards in the middle of the floor, and we all sat in chairs around it, and one by one, we went through the awards, and then we threw them away. And I said, you know, if you just do that, I've only got one granddaughter, uh, one grandchild. And, and I said, there's a big green box that's got a lot of stuff in it. And you don't, don't feel badly. You know, let her see the, let her see the newspaper articles and the magazine articles and stuff and then throw it away. Hmm. It's okay. It's okay. There's no museum, you know, to put all this stuff in. 
Wow. I always like to to end the interview. I just let the guest just take the stage. Just say whatever you like to anyone who's listening. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Wow. Uh, well, I, I've been blessed to be on, I think, like 60 million records. And, and first of all, thanks to thanks to everybody that's ever bought a that's ever bought a record that I'm on or downloaded it or whatever. I've already, you know, in my speech, I thank all the artists that thought enough of my songs to, to record them. But, uh, for, for a kid that was raised in a mill village, never lived in a house that we owned until I was 16. And we had a three room house and all the houses were the same. And, and I, I had big dreams. I always wanted to, I wanted to invent something that had never been invented. And I didn't want to be famous, but I wanted my invention to be famous. Well, that was the creativity thing working, I guess. And, and I invented songs. It ended up that that was what I was supposed to be inventing. And it took me 33 years to realize where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't get to Nashville until I was 33, almost 34. But when I got there, I had something to write about. I'd lived a little bit, but I've just been so blessed, even through illnesses and and you know personal mistakes I made or whatever. Luckily, I've never been uh, on drugs or alcohol. I managed to screw up enough without that. But uh, I've just been very blessed and continue to be. And I used to pull over to the side of the road sometimes when I'd hear one of my songs playing on the radio. I'd have to pull over and cry. And I can tell you right now that I, that still happens. I don't think it'll ever stop. There are times when I think about what all I went through, you know, to, just to get those songs on the radio and, and, uh, to make the friends that I've made and all that, it all kind of comes back sometime. And I've just been very blessed and, you know, I just uh, say thank you for everything. Wonderful. Well, Jim, thank you very much for sharing with us. Well, it's been my pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for asking me. It was an honor. All right, sir. Well, until next time. Thank you, sir. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. God bless. Bye, buddy. God bless. See you later. Bye. Bop-a-doodly-zing, bang, booyah-duckie, jop-a-doon-a-cock-a-boodly-ca, sub-e-dee-bonk-a-t-chee-la-pock-a-doo, zee-le-bonk-a-tone-a-lock-a-pong, goodbye.